We're doing something a little different this time. Because Brian and I both come from movements and we're in movements, we wanted to reflect uh, on this book um, a little bit more because we already did to some, some degree already reflect on it with Vincent during our interview. But we also wanted to do an extra sort of special intro this time and sort of ask each other what was important for us in this book or what made us reflect, like how this book was catalyst for some of our reflections. So Brian, let's start with you. Uh, what it does? What did it make you reflect on? I really enjoyed reading uh, Vincent's book for a couple of reasons. But the main reason I enjoyed reading um, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and The Missing Revolution was because a lot of the lessons that and conclusions that Vincent came to were similar discussions that I had been having with, with uh, friends and comrades and movements um, over 10 years ago. And so it made me think about a couple of things. The first one is that in this period, you know, I think about myself as a child of the 2008 um, financial crisis and the movements that followed. And in the years that followed that, there was this emphasis on the event, the riot or the protest as being the necessary catalyst to unleash revolutionary change. Um, but as we saw that in many of these situations, especially in the global South, those events, riots and movements could not usher in you know, revolutionary transformations in the societies in which they take place. And it made me think that you know, the horizontalist form that Vincent addresses is actually uh, something that is very historically situated. And so when he covers the idea that the shadow of 1989 kind of like looks over a lot of these movements that there was a period in which people thought about organization in a very specific way. And even those people who may have not ideologically agreed with it just kind of went into it in such a way, you know, it made me think that number one, a lot of the lessons that people are taking from the failures of this period are becoming self-evident to a lot of different uh, participants because of their failures. And I think that that's been very interesting, especially in the conversations I've been having with people. I participated in, say, the Occupy movement or the student movement or the anti-police movements. And then the other thing I wanted to say was that because Vincent you know, emphasizes the role of media and mediation, I was thinking about how this emphasis that we put on like the protest or the riot can go in the opposite direction. You know, for example, in 2020, the United States saw one of the largest um, uprisings 
that has happened since the 1992 LA riots after George Floyd was killed. And then immediately afterwards, kind of the liberal political class wanted to erase the event as though it didn't happen. And then similarly, on January 6th, when supporters of Donald Trump had a protest at the Capitol building, they made it into the event, you know, that this was the insurrection. So it shows you how much sway that kind of mediation can have on these uh, on this kind of like singular event centric form of politics. And I think that what it made me realize was that having more organization in some capacities like absolutely necessary um, and whatever that means and whatever that looks like in order to actually turn movements from just resistance into something that can actually transform a society and transform the world. And so the fact that he's able to critique this, you know, basically liberal teleological thinking um, and, and show how the shadow of 1989 is cast upon it, I think was like really, really informative um, for me personally. And Sopo, so like, you know, what do you think about it? What kind of lessons or what kind of reflections do you have? I have a lot of things uh, I want to say, but also not a lot of it is really kind of worked out in my head yet because I'm still processing it, but something I constantly think about. A few things. Um, I was never actually a person that believed in this horizontalism or any of that. I felt like my practice was often that, but I didn't actually believe in it. Uh, because uh, people around me were so much more into this horizontalism or obsessed with it that it made me sort of conform to it, even though verbally I would also argue and say this is actually wrong, but then in practice I would be forced to act that way. So, like, really there was not a lot of room for organization. Um, and, like, in, and so I'm coming from the U.S. context first and foremost. So, uh by the time I left the U.S., which was like 2014, I really had just missed the beginning of these huge protests around um, BLM and anti-police and Ferguson and so on. So when I was there, these were like sort of picking up speed. Um, so I come from the anti-war movement. I, you know, I remember going to protests uh, or like speeches by like veterans or, you know, um, veterans for peace and so on when I was like, I don't know, 22, 23. Um, so then the anti-war movement sort of died down 2008 because of Obama. And then from then on, it started picking up in these different ways. So like police protests against uh, police and then Occupy Wall Street. I was in Occupy Atlanta. Um, but like really, I think what's so interesting is like the kinds of people like Vincent talks about when this becomes a media frenzy, so like something happens, you start off with like, you know, more radical people say, or revolutionaries or whoever they call themselves. And once it gets media attention, it attracts totally different people who just sort of like, oh, I, that's cool. Or something is happening on media and are coming to join it, which are very different, come from very different culture. They don't have the same history. They don't have the same politics. So Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Atlanta was like a horrible experience to that that attracted so many middle class people that <laughs> it was like everything was discussed to death 
And almost everyone who I joined, like, did not come from any kind of leftist tradition, um, besides, like, a few people. So it was, like, everything if from, you know, where do you put the fork on the right or the left of the plate? Had to, like, from the beginning. Like, everything had to sort of start from the beginning. So everything was argued. Everything was learned. So it took a really long time. And then at the end of the day, nothing really came from it uh, in the sense that, it was sort of very split between sort of anarchist and liberals, right? Like, so the liberals were all the newcomers who like didn't understand what was happening. And they were just like, oh, you can't be violent. And, oh, the police are, you know, let's let's not like, you know, get mad at the police. And then the anarchist side would be like, no, like violence is okay. Like we should defend ourselves. So it was like, like constantly, that was the only discussion that ever really emerged from it. So it was nothing about bigger politics, like all the bigger politics stuff sort of got crushed underneath it. What was interesting is that the Bernie movement and the, the social Democrats really kind of arose from that. Also like Occupy Our Homes and Occupying Homes in general is where more of the politics sort of developed. So the Occupy Wall Street was a little bit more wobbly. Occupying Homes was a little bit more like concrete demands. And then it became more of this, uh, went from like totally anarchists reigning during Occupy Wall Street to more social Democrats reigning right afterwards, you know? So it's like really interesting to juxtapose those two two things because social Democrats were clearly not doing well in Occupy Wall Street movements. But then they were holding on to all the radicals afterwards and Bernie Sanders emerging and really being the moment because of that for for, for many, many years. Um, anyway, so watching this kind of play out um, and then being in Georgia, one thing that really prepared me for Georgia, but also I was very unprepared, um, is that I had seen Battle of Chile. Not only have I seen Battle of Chile, the documentary um, about how the right wing, the fascists and liberals, like all of them, destabilized um, Allende by using leftist tactics like student strikes, student mobilization strikes, um, boycotts, anti-corruption sort of uh, initiatives, um, uh, and so on. So... I had seen that on TV, like I've seen the videos of it. So I like knew that such a thing existed, which I remember being shocked because I had call, called like one of these guys that was kind of like a mentor. And I was like, did you know that strikes can be used in a right wing way, like against socialists? And he was like, no, strike in itself is always progressive. He said, like, you can't actually have a strike that's regressive or against a sort of progressive or socialist candidate or a, a leader, um, student strikes and so on. And I'm like, wait, wait, but I just saw this you know, documentary, like it can be done. So I think it's interesting because I think Vincent sort of coming to that understanding, reading this book is like a lot of these mobilizations were very much snatched up by the right wing or people who are um, interests are either you know pro-imperialist or uh you know pro-business or whatever and you know these well-meaning leftists or people progressives were used to sort of punch that kind of status quo create the vacuum and then the right wing filled it and and took it took it quickly um, so it's a little bit different than Battle of Chile and what they did because there there was already a socialist president. What's interesting is about Vincent's conclusions. Um, yeah, you absolutely need to plan organization and so on. But even if you come to power, like 
Well, like Dilma or Allende, you can have right-wingers like destabilize you and take you out, you know? So, you know, in, in Battle of, of Algiers, um, there's a there's a line where it was like, it's really difficult to start a revolution, to like win the revolution. And the most difficult is what happens after the revolution, you know? So it's like, there's so much difficulty in obtaining power and then holding on to power and then using that power to change anything. It seems almost impossible really if you break it down this way. But my favorite part, and I'll end on this because I'm talking a lot, is that part um, about, you know, there are all these activists that are sort of reflecting on the Arab Spring or Brazil or whatever the movements are in the book. And it says something like, um, you know, that these Westerners like need to understand that like when you write theories in New York, whatever, like the consequences to those theories, like not working out is very minor, right? You may, what, like you could become an academic afterwards if this doesn't work out or something. Like it, you're just not really that risky. But in other countries like Egypt, right, Brazil, those theories not working out has huge consequences. Which reminds me also of Rocky Dalton's poem on that. How many people have died in the name of pacifism or something is something like that. So it's like, what's really important is that to know that how much the global South, quote unquote, was actually learning from the global North and the global North theory theorists are really just armchair people who don't have to face the consequences of any of their theories. Where the global South enacting them did face those consequences in insane levels of death, destruction, dictatorships, and so on. And unfortunately, this continues. The global North has the funds, has the resources, the time to continuously publish and be the sort of unwanted vanguard of revolutionary movements or just movements in general. And they're the ones who don't seem to have the same um, circumstances to really consider the consequences of their of their big big plans or big uh, theories. So that was really kind of painful to to think about. One thing I was going to say was that you know, and and this is like a very big change from say how struggles were. I think reverberating during the sixties and seventies where I think in the global North, there was a lot more um, inspiration from the movements and struggles of the global South. And that is actually an interesting change um, when we compare it to the um, post Soviet or the post cold war era where there's a kind of transformation in that. Because, you know, if we look at the the way that leftists um, conducted themselves in North America, you know, in the late 60s, they were taking inspiration from the Maoist insurgencies in the global South and really reading and studying those theorists. And the other thing, just to add to what you're saying is, you know, not only were these people in the global South taking inspiration from theorists, but there was also, after the financial crisis, these kind of movements that emerged that I think people thought they could replicate in the same way, but 
in very different conditions with, as you said, completely different set of consequences when they don't work out. That's the thing, like in the US or Europe, like to gain power, like activists are so far from power that they don't actually consider what it's like to get real power and like what that means. I never had the ambition. I never thought about the possibility of even getting like a council seat in Atlanta, you know? Like it was more like we're on the ground changing things. Yet, yeah, yet in Egypt or in other places, right? It was, the dream was to overthrow or in uh, in Brazil, uh, it was actually not the dream to overthrow. The leftists just wanted fares to go down, but the right wing was able to seize on it and overthrow the government. So I think the, the these more sort of stable liberal democracies, it's a lot harder to get to power. So you don't think about power in that way. Yet the global South, because it's been overthrown, there's coups, there's so much more unstable. There's actually a chance to gain power. So like even your ambitions of how you're thinking is very different. Um, the horizon of possibilities is much is, is much different than from the global north and global south. But you're absolutely right about what you're saying is that the global south should teach the global north, but at some point it changed. And then it's and I think it's probably on purpose. There's like all this all these courses and, and books and dis disciplines around studying, you know, endlessly social movements and most people in the U.S., when they say they're like a leftist, they really mean they're in academia doing some whatever research. You know, they're Marxists. So it's like almost exclusively academic disciplines. These are not real revolutionaries. They're not radicals. They're just academics who are like just doing some study on certain whatever. And they are subordinate to the academic system. They're constantly looking for, you know, where they can become you know, the professors and this and that, and they just feel cool to be part of also like know what's going on in the movement. It's a really disturbing trend and I cannot stand it. Yeah, I, I just wanted to address the fact that, uh, you know, Vince's uh, Vincent's book is call, uh, called If We Burn the Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Um, and this reminded me, you know, I participated in Occupy Oakland, um, which had some specific dynamics different from other Occupy movements, uh, given the local history of the Bay Area, uh, the role of the left in the politics there. Um, and one of the things is that, you know, these movements become kind of like moments where people meet each other, where people's consciousness politically um, gets elevated, people learn lessons. And, you know, it's interesting to reflect back on this time versus how we were perceiving the possibilities like during it. And so I feel like it's because of the failures and the inability to actually turn the moment of revolution of what we perceived to be revolutionary possibility into something that was actually successful you then have this this way where people who thought that they could become you know full-time revolutionaries or believed that they were going to be able to try to change the world 
either end up going back to, you know, the neighborhoods that they were, the poor neighborhoods that they were from, or go back to academia, or go back to some other, you know, uh, life that they believed the movement itself could like overcome, but it couldn't. Um, and that's one of the lessons that I learned, which is why there has to be continuity before and after these movements, and that there has to be kind of political institutions that people build, political forms of organizing that like are able to maintain uh, these struggles, not just rely on, you know, the event. And so that to me was also, you know, a big lesson um, that I think, interestingly, uh, Vincent's book, of course, like touches on, which is that this is a lesson that I think people across the world, global North and the global South have come to like more and more, you know, and that is the one part, piece of hope I guess I have is that it does seem that people are taking some of these critiques, lessons and failures seriously in the hopes of like doing something different. All right, Vincent Bevins, welcome to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for, for the interest in the work. Uh, my name is Vincent Bevins. I'm a journalist from the United States. I've worked as a foreign correspondent of some kind or another for about 15 years. Um, and this book came out uh, of my time in Brazil, most most importantly. So um I've been doing sort of global politics for a while, and this is my second book about sort of, in some way or another, the world system uh, that we got at the end of the Cold War uh, and and what's happened since. And great. And so for our listeners, you know, could you just give a little summary uh, of your recent book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution? You know, what is it about? What are you saying in it? And what does it cover? Yeah, absolutely. It is about mass protests. Um, what it really tries to be, um, it cannot really succeed at being this, but what it tries to be is a history of the 2010s. Um, but like any work of history, it must choose what to include and what to exclude and what its main concerns are and what about the past matters to us in the present. So this is a history of the world over 10 years um, that acts as if the most important thing to happen in that decade was the phenomenon of mass protests that got so big that they became something else. Um, protests that got so many people to join them that they either overthrew or fundamentally destabilized governments. And the overriding concern, the driving question, the, the thing that matters quite a lot to the, the way that I structure the history is the sort of mysterious concern, the sort of mystery of how is it that so many mass protests led to the opposite of what they apparently asked for at the beginning? How is it that things like the so-called Arab Spring or the uprisings in Turkey and Brazil and so many other places were met with such euphoria at the beginning, seemed to, to seem to seemed pregnant with so much promise 
uh, and then it either led to disaster or nothing or 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 just very at the best mixed and incomplete victories for the original organizers so it really is i think you know some people have read it as if it's trying to make a very specific point about what to do and but i think in, to me at least it's a work of history that um, I've been gratified to see different people reading in different ways and coming away from it with different lessons and different interpretations. Because when you try to put the events of 10 years across the world into a book, it's it hopefully it's rich with detail and, and it's open to um, overlapping and 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 overlapping and uh, 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 complex meanings. Like, I don't think it's my first book, The Jakarta Method, which was about U.S. backed uh, anti-communist mass murder in the 20th century you can kind of wrap up that story with a with a nice bow like it's kind of a slam dunk it's like it's cart like the, the the overriding point like the u.s employed mass murder uh, as part of its as part of the construction of hegemony in the cold war um and that was very bad it's quite an, an easy thing to agree with whereas this book opens itself to a lot of different interpretations and, and people can, I think, build different paths forward out of, out of the way we understand the 2010s. So first of all, I want to say that, you know, I was very, I, I very much was looking forward to and enjoyed reading your book because in some ways I'm like a child of this generation and participated in movements, you know, in the United States and found inspiration from them and also the disappointments from them uh, and their failures. Uh, and so reading this was like really refreshing because in a lot of ways it just, totally spoke to a lot of the critiques that me and a lot of people I'm close to have about the trajectory of the failures of and the almost like counter-revolutionary um, uh, ends that these movements that we so that we poured our hearts into went went toward you know um, and I also liked of course the fact that your book focuses on the movements in the global south right which in some way paralleled, but were pretty distinct from the kind of movement, the squares, the Occupy movement and the Western world. And so I really like that you kind of like put those as the focus and then try to actually get lessons, you know, not from the indignados in Spain and not from the uh, Syntagma Square movement in Greece, but actually from like the way that these things went off in the um, so-called third world, the so-called global South or what have you. But one of the key themes of your book that I wanted to start with was um, you quote the uh, 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte uh, by Karl Marx from 1852 with this very, um, I think, like great and insightful quote, um, which is that those who cannot represent themselves will be represented. And you kind of throw this into the middle of the book and then your book ends with a discussion that you're having with people who participated in the movements in Brazil, who then say there's no such thing as a power vacuum, a political power vacuum. And so I'm wondering if you could just as an entryway into your book, like how does this theme uh, or this thread uh, manifest in your book? And what does this idea, you know, that those who cannot represent themselves will be represented and that there's no such thing as a power political power vacuum you know how does that influence the analysis or understanding or story that you're trying to tell yeah and so this is a big a big through line that starts before even the 2010s and really ends up being something that people are really speaking about in the 2020s um so to begin 
that story, I think we need to recognize what a lot of um, a lot of militants or political revolutionaries or just people that cared about politics in the in the second half of the 20th century started to realize that the representative structures um, that had been such an important part of democracy uh, and the state in the first half of the 20th century began to fray. Um, the organizations that were supposed to represent people, whether that was the government itself, unions, political parties, were in decline. Um, this, these, the, the links between the representatives and the represented began to fray, if not disappearing entirely. Um, and the process of mediation, which was so important to political change from below in, you know, in the things like the construction of the welfare state, Keynesian, Keynesianism, uh, social democracy also seemed to be frayed. So by the end of the 20th century, there are some tendencies on the anti-authoritarian left that come to the conclusion, well, it's, it's it, it can't be done. Representation is not happening. And maybe that's good. Um, that, that can be seen as a good thing anyways. So there was a certain strain of anti-authoritarian left politics, especially in the global north, that came together really with a set of tactics in the, the anti or alter globalization movement. That, you know, and, and again, one of the main characters in the book, I'm getting ahead of myself, Fernando Haddad, who's the mayor of Sao Paulo in 2013, and he's now the minister of finance on Lula's new government. He wrote a very long essay about how it really made sense when you were going up against the World Trade Organization, the IMF, to always already know that there will be no mediation. Like the whole point of having these little, you know, the, the, the WTO conference in a little building is that it's not supposed to be affected by the people on the streets, right? And so there were some people not, you know, again, this is not a, a like, it's not like if you did a poll back in 2010, that most people actually believe this, but there was some part of the anti-authoritarian left that believed that all representation was somehow authoritarian or somehow um, put, put political organizations or political movements on the path to authoritarianism, that mediation was impossible. And so that they would insist that, um, for example, uh, a political movement should have no leaders, no spokesperson, would not seek to replicate a version of itself in the representational sphere, like seek, seek to repl replicate a version of itself in the state. Like the idea was not to transform the state, but to build power from below, just really just to build a uh, a power center here and now. Um, and that was that was sort of the, the be all and the end all of the movement. There was no, the, the idea that representation or mediation could be the final outcome uh, of a political movement was seen as both unlikely and undesirable. And uh, so some people really believe this uh, in the 2010s. In other cases, it's not that, that this is a widespread belief, but the type of mass protest that becomes hegemonic, and I think it's both for material and ideological reasons, the type of mass protest that becomes easiest to do quickly in the era of individualization, neoliberalization, social media, the decimation of parties, unions, and representative structures, tends to be one where there isn't really any representation. You know, this is the, the famous horizontally structured mass protest, something that was really celebrated by people like me in the beginning of the 2010s. Uh, journalists would show up and say, oh, it's leaderless and it's the post-ideological, which, you know, uh, 
spoiler alert, that means that the that liberal media are allowed to interpret it as a liberal uh, uh, uprising. Because if, 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 if there's no, one of the things that was most attractive to this reading that, oh, this is uh, uh, leaderless and, and non-ideological is that the, the foreign journalists can believe or act as if something like the uprising in Egypt was a pro-Western movement when it was, when it was the exact opposite. So be, when you get this type of um, mass demonstration, this type of response to injustice in the 2010s that is concretely horizontal and where there is no one that can speak for the movement. And even there's mo there's moments when, when, for example, governments that are sympathetic in general to protest try to dialogue with the streets, but it's impossible because there's no one you could put together in a room that can say this is what the, the movement wants or this is what the movement will accept as a victory. What happens over and over throughout the decade is that someone imposes representation onto the movement. Someone shows up, some kind of a cynical or entrepreneurial actor that says, really, this is about this. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to jump to the top and I'm going to use resources and I'm going to use either financial resources, media power, military power to impose meaning on this thing that is incapable of speaking for itself. And often, if you, you know, as a very, very simple rubric for understanding what happens in various cases, you can look at who is most organized and, and able to impose representation in, an, in a way which is, I think, more authoritarian than if there had been internal structures for coming up with representation, right? So that's the, this is the debate that goes back to the 20th century. Like there's, it, you can decide democratically what your movement, how the movement wants to represent itself. But if you don't, somebody else might come around and impose meaning upon you. And this is a meaning that you would have never chosen. And that is actual, you know, often, you know, amounts to real violence, not like discursive violence, real violence against you. So many, many people that I spoke to across the, Mass protest decade, come back to this this essay written in the 1970s by Joe Freeman, The Tyranny of Structurelessness. And that's the basic idea, which is that if you have if you insist that there are no leaders, if you insist that there are no structures, you're going to get structure anyways, but not a structure that you chose. And this is uh, a dominant and tragic theme throughout the book, I think. Just to quickly follow on that, um, one part of your book uh, that I also really liked was that it seems like it's a response to the kind of teleological liberal idea um, that was very popular, I think, at the beginning of the Arab Spring, which was that um, social media, for example, as this democratic form of representation is going to be a democratizing force. But in your book, you actually examine and break down the ways that like social media and even um, leaderless or horizontalist forms of representation are the midwives of the opposite. Um, and so I thought that that was like a very, very important uh, piece of the book. And I think that leads me into this next question that uh, follows on this, which is like, you know, you go at lengths to uh, situate this rise of horizontalism or leaderless movements as like a historically situated phenomenon, meaning that in the in, in the wake of the death and dismemberment of the Soviet Union, um, there's the emergence of these new forms. But then it's interesting because when you're actually talking to people on the ground in these movements, they all have a little bit more complex 
opinions about the horizontalism. And in some sense, some of these people are actually just um, kind of brought within them. And there's even tensions between some of the participants and some of the more ideological factions that are committed to horizontalism as the form of organization that's actually going to get the demands met. So I'm wondering if like, you could just talk a little bit about this tension between say horizontalism as this very historically uh, specific form of political organization. And then this like ideology, which kind of romanticizes it and wants to emphasize it as being the only means of revolutionary change in this uh, particular decade that you're looking at. So that's a, yeah, that's a good way to frame the question. And I'm going to steal as like a pithy and like slightly oversimplified way of responding to it. I'm going to steal what someone replied to me on Twitter once, because sometimes when you like post something that's like half thought out, someone will tell you a better version of your thoughts. Uh, a really like crude way of explaining horizontalism, according to this random person on Twitter that whose name I can't remember, is horizontalism was when anarchists in the United States fetishized the Argentine response to state collapse in 2001. So what really happens concretely in um, Argentina in 2001, and this is one of the, the archetypal and most, yeah, archetypal um, instances of state collapse as a result of neoliberalism. So the in 2001 in Argentina, and I spoke to a lot of people that lived through this, and this is what we're referring to, I think, with the the the, the historic, this was, the, what happened was the concrete response to historic conditions. And um, I spoke to a lot of people that lived through this, and what happened was all the representative structures, they didn't just like decline, like, oh, you, you know, unions are less strong than they used to be. They like collapsed, right? Like there was no... The state couldn't do anything. The firm couldn't do anything. Unions couldn't do anything. Parties couldn't do anything. So what did people do? Um, they met and had neighborhood assemblies. And these were neighborhood assemblies that were concretely horizontal, but they also had a lot of people in them. If you if you, if you look to talk to the right people that thought that this was a really exciting thing, that everybody in the neighborhood could speak equally. Um, everybody in the neighborhood could show up. There was no one that was in or that was out. There was no leader. It was just like, you know, the people would meet and, and have these genuinely horizontal uh, neighborhood assemblies. And of course, those neighborhood assemblies did not transform Argentina into sort of libertarian communism or something. Like eventually people, like when people found jobs, a lot of people went and got them. Uh, slowly, uh, like the Peronist state became reconstructed in a ways which has never been, you know, the, the original problems have never been solved. Millet is another attempt to respond to the real question, the problems in Argentine society. But um the people outside of Argentina that thought that this is something that should be like, you know, they saw this as prefigurative. They saw this as like a glimpse of a new type of politics that could be truly transformative. And the horizontalists around the world were people that said, oh, yeah, this kind of, um, you know, in, in it, it's revealing that in Chile, like they just call it assemblism. Um, it is the permanent, the like, it is permanent talking amongst equals, which like reproduces a lot of real problems for the some of the main protagonists in my book, the Movimento Passi Livre, because they have to have, because they insist on full consensus for all their decisions, they have meetings of 14, 16 hours often to come up with, you know, simple tactical shifts. And so on the one hand, you have 
the actual impossibility of Argentines in that moment doing anything else really other than meeting outside of representative structures. But then you have some people around the world, and, uh, um, especially on the anti-authoritarian left, that think, oh no, this is the way forward. This is a this is an experiment in reformulating organization itself. It is morally and we're going to morally and tactically privilege this as a way forward. Now, again, there's not that many people that believe this explicitly, right? Like there are very few people that actually have this conscious thought in their heads. But the so the protagonist of the book, uh, you know, like I said the MPL in Brazil, one of the main characters, a lot of them really they, they certainly are formed with this um with this ideology. They they they're formed as an explicitly horizontal group. Now, even in the group, as as they set off the popular uprising that they always hoped to spark in 2013, now there are quick there are divisions that emerge very, very quickly over what to do. And so a lot of people are saying, well, actually, lots of Brazilians want to join our group now. Like there are so many people that have seen what we're doing, that they're inspired by what we're doing, that we need to find a way to let them into our group without diluting what it is. So since we have meetings for 12 hours, we have to set, like set up a way that people can participate in a different way without having to become like permanent activists like we are. Um, and then there are other people in, in, in the group that said, no, that's a Leninist deviation. That would be the reintroduction of hierarchy. That's it. That's that would that would be that means representation. That means we're representing them. That is that goes against everything we stand for. So some people now believe in that group that they had a moment where they could have become like a mass social movement that put the decommodification of public transportation at the center of Brazilian politics or even at the center of global politics in the way that, you know, Brazil's landless workers movement is a reference for agrarian reform activists around the world but they could like but the the insistence on that form in that moment made it made it impossible to do so and it also made it impossible to shift tactics quickly because they couldn't get everybody to agree to um changing actions given changing circumstances so yeah i mean that's that's a, the, that 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 is so so one of the more eloquent, uh, you know, they're all eloquent actually, because everyone that's in this group is like a really, really well-read and like serious activist, which is a problem because like that's part of the problem because like not everyone, like definitionally, not everyone that you're going to want in a protest is going to be like this, especially if it scales up really, really quickly. But uh, uh, one of the interviewees who's very eloquent about this, he comes to the conclusion that they had turned inspiration into dogma they were really excited by what the argentine had the way that the argentines had fought back in 2001 and then that sort of ossified into a dogma which turned out to be a straitjacket for them in, in key moments first i would like to commend you on your sort of self-reflection as your own role in a lot of these things because you are a person i would hate in Georgia. So this like American, um, you know, uh, usually white man comes and like Georgia hangs out with uh, people in, you know, English speaking bars and thinks they know everything and, you know, really misses a lot of things. And so it's frustrating. And often they become spokespersons for the country. Um, and so, and they're the ones that almost always Western you know, journalists will reach out to. Uh, and others to understand the situation. 
So I appreciated some of that self-reflection you had. And I also like that, like of the people that you, you know, to train people like the NGO and the English speakers here and everywhere else in Ukraine and other places where they're literally trained to talk to people like you, you know, to the the, the middleman between the country, usually the liberal sort of elites and, uh, and Americans for the West. So I appreciated that. <laughs> um, also, what about the podcast about Soviet Georgia? Sort of tie back why the demise. So why does this really take off and pop off in the 2010s? Um, what happens with uh, sort of demise of the Soviet Union? How does that influence a lot of the protest forms and a lot of the the um, politics as well? Um, because you, it is this big thing. It's and and I think I think you said I think it's Graeber that said like. Anarchism is dominant before and after. Like it's not really doing too well during war. You know, like it does better when, when it's like peacetime. So maybe you can discuss that as like a background to all this and why this book is really important for our understanding of the Soviet Union and post-Soviet. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that really 1989 hangs over this decade like uh, a dark cloud that need people need to look into. <laughs> Uh, it's like not you, but like the liberal media needs to really take a hard look at the myths that it told itself about what happened in 1989 to 1991, because that had real consequences for the way that this decade is interpreted and lived. But I'll start with what you said first. Yeah, no, thanks for that. Like I put myself in this book to some degree, but it, it is so that I can be critical of my own profession so like i hope that in this book i'm like a reliable narrator but not necessarily a sympathetic narrator like i i think it's fine if people say oh my god like based on the story that i put together i, I think it's fine for readers to say like oh i wish he hadn't done that i think th i wish he hadn't come to this conclusion um i think in brazil uh brazil's little like slightly different um because it is such an open and like um international country that if you are there long enough you can kind of get a sense of the different worlds but in other countries like in indonesia ukraine there's really just like a core there's like a tiny little disciplined vanguard of people who are trained trained cadre who like supply the seven western journalists at the expensive bar with all of their talking points and all of their uh all of their like story ideas because like if in, in a lot of like uh parts of the world if you show up and you, if you're not going to like really really learn the language and, and you know meet the 20 30 40 different types of political opinions that exist like there's a lot of people that just hang out at that one bar in Jakarta or you know uh, 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 whatever capital city it might be and then just get their ideas from like people that are you know all, you know often like Often, like they have, they're fine in terms of what their opinions are, but they're just so much better placed to tell Western journalists what the story really is and and who do they should talk to that that they end up dominating the the discourse. So yeah, this is something that I try to point to uh, as a problem for the first draft of history, as we call it, uh, like sort of uh, self-aggrandizingly in, in my profession. So, um, but yeah, 1989 really matters for two reasons. Um, one, my class of people, 
people in the liberal humanities in the West, certainly uh, people that came up in newsrooms at the same time as me, were really shaped by the assumptions at the end of history, uh, the assumptions and the stories that we told ourselves after um, 1989. And really, like, that story is pretty, I'm sure you guys uh, uh, <laughs> talk about it all the time. But, you know, and it's well, it's 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 easily recognizable. That story goes basically, the people rise up, David Hasselhoff arrives, sings a song, the Berlin Wall fall, falls, and everyone lives happily ever, ever after. And this is something that is like really like, really was the the story that was told to us in you know growing up in California or even being trained up in Western media. The idea that just like oh yeah everybody got oh yeah everybody got freedom and democracy. Like the all that all that had to happen was first of the people took to the streets, which caught which is obvious as you both know very well that's wrong. That's not what caused the collapse of uh soviet union and, and european communist states uh and then every and then much much more wrong is the idea that everybody got prosperity and democracy the idea that if you just crush just like decimate an existing social structure that a new one just grows out of the earth and this is this te teleological framing that you know history moves forward and everything's progressing towards like the whole world's going to be california just not slightly not, not not quite as rich like there's going to be a the, in 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 the 20th 21st century there's going to be like the US and then the rest of the country is going to be like the minor leagues of the US so going into the 2010s a lot of journalists and this is something that I try to point to in in the interpretation of 2011 in in places like Tunisia and Egypt even it, though a really important uh actor in the in making happen the first uprising in, in North Africa, in Tunisia, is a Marxist-Leninist party that um, was um, part of the Hojaist International for a few years, even though uh, revolutionary socialists play a huge role in making Egypt happen. A lot of people like me see really big crowds on the street and they say, oh, they're doing 1989 again. So there's this idea that is held by the interpreters of the, the, the uprisings as well as by some people in the uprisings themselves, but less so with these, you know, um, informed and sort of thoughtful revolutionaries that, oh yeah, so you get enough people on the streets, you get these huge crowds and you're going to get the thing that we were told that they got at the end of the Soviet Union. Just automatically, oh look, they're doing Egyptian Berlin Wall because the, because literally the, the photograph looks similar, right? Um and now I'm going to start to get into territory that you guys both know much, much better than I do. But I think that what actually happens in the the wake of the collapse of the former uh, uh, European communist states has a lot more to do with what we really get in the 2010s than this this myth, right? And this goes back to the question um, earlier, like. What happened often, and again, you'll correct me if I'm wrong because this is a simplified reading, is that when the actual authority structures collapsed in the Soviet Union and, and uh, 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 allied states, the assets that were available were grabbed by people that took advantage of the power vacuum. So there were mid-level bureaucrats, there were, there were sort of entrepreneurs, there were proto-capitalists that just used the breakdown in... Uh, state structures and societal structures to just grab stuff 
So the power vacuum did not stay around for long, right? Like people took advantage of um, the chaos to just take things. So um, I think actually something similar happened with the internet to like really, I mean, to really, really oversimplify things. I think we got a set of oligarchs um, in the United States starting in the 90s because the internet, which, which was so open and free to everyone, was seized by a set of oligarch people that are, are, are now oligarchs. Um, but certainly I think uh, the, this huge gap between the story we told ourselves about 1989 and the reality of the 2000s. Fundamentally, these protests are changed with the role of media, right? Or even the form because now you have an audience. And um, what's also kind of interesting is that media also creates leaders, you know, <laughs> the representatives um, of these movements and cause resentment from the people that are there. And so it's kind of... Well, not interesting, but it's a dynamic there that's really important to take into account, um, especially because I think people or a lot of young protesters, a lot of people, not even just young, people who've been around will continuously confuse visibility with power as well. Um, something, you know, Stokely Carmichael, like in Black Power said, like, never confuse visibility for power. And so... It's also a shortcut, you know, I think in Georgia, I've been part of Occupy Atlanta and I'm also part of you know, Georgia here, the country Georgia, where I see how the media kind of ruins a lot of things here, you know, especially um, really gets like young people who protest and first time ever they've come out on the streets, all of a sudden the media will make them superstars overnight. And they don't have the skills, they don't have the politics to even back any of that up. And so often it makes them more think about like how like clout chase and how to become more famous, you know. So it's like that's like routinely a problem. I, there was a student movement and the students were just like killing each other who would go to the TV station. I was like, oh my God, like so it's actually quite different than Occupy Wall Street, but Atlanta, nobody wanted to go on TV. So <laughs> it was because not allowed to like if anybody even tried to go and get on tv or try to speak with journalists they would be like ostracized you know like so it's it's interesting to see all those dynamics play out no no that's great because it's this is really fundamental so again like the fact that i'm part of this class that like made huge mistakes in the 2010s um was fundamental to the way i wrote it so I, as I said, I put myself in the in the book so that I can look at, uh, I, I can um, carry out this critique of international media, but also like it really matters to protests. It matters more than I would like it to, and I think it would matters more than a lot of people had realized um, going into the 2010s. So what I try to construct historically, and I thank Brian for like noticing that I try like to historicize horizontality. I try to historicize everything because a lot of like a key feature of the neoliberal era, I think, is that uh, a lot of neoliberal ideologies try to present themselves as if they are not. They try to present themselves as if they are natural. So it's really important to see that things came from somewhere and they could have gone another way. And in the case only that someone like Anderson Cooper shows up and says, this is what's happening on the ground and everyone else around the world believes it. I found that the media representation of the protest 
changed the shape of the material thing on the streets. So people, you can only get the kind of rapid scaling up that we saw in the 2010s because of this rapid, this virtuous or or um, not virtuous cycle of representation in the media. <clears throat> and people go to the protest based on what they have seen in media, whether or not it's social media or traditional media. And so the, what they have seen in the media, I, you know, in, in strange ways, led to kind of like fights on the streets over like, what is this? Because I'm here thinking that it was this one thing that I saw on Twitter or on television. And the original organizers are saying, no, no, you don't know what we're, we've been doing since the beginning. And they actually like in the case of Brazil, they got into fights over this. So media representation, as I said, not only changed the way that the world understood it, not only changed the way that the a movement was represented to the world, but actually changed the thing itself on the ground. Um, and so there's, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Stokely Carmichael or Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Touré, because like really, if you want like a really, really pithy summary of like what a lot of the people in the book uh, end up saying at the end of the decade, you could just watch his 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 like uh, the clip on YouTube where he talks about mobilization versus organization. <laughs> Or you can watch the Fred Hampton clip where he talks about adventurism and the weathermen and how the weathermen are, you know, like he's not against the use of violence, but he thinks that uh, radical tactics without a radical strategy and without an organization, which is building real power, um, can be very dangerous. Um, and so, so what do you do? So if you are actually trying to create a protest movement, if you believe that this is the tactic that is best for your organization, the, res the refusal to engage with your representation in media, as you, as you pointed out, often the media will just show up and pick somebody else as their leader. Then in the case of the Arab Spring, they might pick somebody that speaks English and is a, a, a pro-Western liberal. Um, in the case of Ukraine, it may be somebody that uh, uh, for all, you know, this doesn't mean I disagree with them necessarily, but they end up seeming like they're the only type of Ukrainian that exists. But this is somebody that's a pro-Western a pro liberal that is, you know, has been trained to speak eloquently to the Western press. And so something like the Black Panther Party or something like the uh, MSD, the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil, they would have a very carefully constructed internal mechanism for deciding who's going to speak and what they're going to say. Um, like the MST would ha has like a communications sector. It's like if you look at the MST, even though like uh, the in this work, um, even though they do a lot of like direct action things, they have quite like a, like a hierarchical structure. Like they have some things which they they've taken a lot of things from the Soviet legacy, actually, in terms of cadre formation and internal decision making policies, um, because they know that they're going to always be in this halfway oppositional but also sometimes advantageous advantageous relationship with the media uh, and they're going to try to use it as much as they can they know again core snick martin luther king they knew that the media especially like the more racist you know the most racist elements of the u.s media were going to lie about them but at least they had a mechanism for saying no this is the person that's the, the spokesperson for this organization this is not true the black panther party when somebody in the black panther party or someone claiming to be in the black panther party did something insane or criminal or when it was just like off you know actually just an fbi 
uh, agent provocateur. The Black Panther Party would have been able to say, that person's not in the party, or if he was, he's expelled. This is not what stand for, et cetera. And so you can't, you never, you never win the battle of representation as long if 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 there are media with different um ideologies than you, if you don't have uh, if 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 you know if you're in a because by definition if you're sort of a revolutionary movement if you're an active group of activists that means that you build something different than the dominant forces in society do so you're never going to get like exactly your message out in the way that you want but there are better and worse ways I think many of my interviewees concluded of dealing with this inevitable fight over narrative and refusing to talk to the media means that someone else is is elevated as a spokesperson or often what you get in these um fully horizontally structured movements is that whoever like really really likes being on tv the most or whoever is the loudest on social media whoever is the most photogenic or whoever can like craft the perfect viral post ends up speaking for millions of people do you know that um the example you have of occupy atlanta turning away Representative Lewis was a um, former comrade of mine who was the one outspoken. It was funny because it was like that day I had, I think I missed being there for those few hours. Um, and that guy came from Emory University, which is an incredibly elite university. He was, um, we didn't know this, but his dad was a cop. He like kept that away from us. And then and he kind of went nuts. Like he had a like sexual like like rape allegations later on, I think. And like just a, a person that I met that was more conservative than me. And like in five months, the guy was like completely ultra left because he clearly didn't have like a very centered or um didn't have a very stable political um life, let's say, or, or home. And he just kind of like bounced around, but he was just really sort of obsessed with the tradition of like the oral tradition of speaking a lot. So I think in general, he would always intervene and think that he has something to offer because he was incredibly entitled. So I thought that's interesting. You had you had his example in there because he was incredibly annoying, <laughs> obnoxious. And he should he should have never been like anyway. But um, but that sentiment was actually more about I would say. It's a, it's correct it's in the line with your book, but it's also a little different because Atlanta is sort of dominated by the civil rights movement leaders that kind of crushed anything that was outside of them, and they were very conservative. Actually, just became sort of Democrat hacks, and and so there was this constant push of um, more radicalism that they would crush. Um, and so, but but interesting enough, Representative Lewis was actually the least problematic one, really. He was much better than the rest. Um, but that was the constant tension. And that moment really turned off a lot of Black people from Occupy Atlanta, and it being mostly a middle-class white thing. Um, and that's how it really stayed, you know, because of that moment. So it really just alienated a lot of people quickly, but it also made it that this space is no longer, they can't be co-opted by the civil rights people who are sort of resting on their laurels, using their 
past life to then impose their politics, conservative, more conservative, I don't mean conservative in the sense of right wing, but more conservative liberal politics. One thing in your book that I also noticed was that you make a concerted effort to always analyze the kind of like sociological makeup of the protests. And one of the things that I appreciated was that you kind of at every single step of the way, make sure to at least comment on who was there, which constituency it was, because I think that if I'm to critique certain politics that I um, had participated in too, it seems like this horizontalist moment attempted to reject the idea that that mattered and that any single person, any single time could actually, through the revolutionary struggle, sort of like um, overcome their own um, sociological class and sometimes race, ethno-national background. And so I guess, how does this play in to some of your conclusions, the role of of the, the who constituted the protest movements that you were analyzing? Yeah, no, this is something, and I like, again, I totally felt like this myself. I totally, I was, I totally, I didn't believe it explicitly, consciously, if someone had been eloquent enough to put it to a question to me directly, I wouldn't have said, yes, I believe that the people when they take the streets are necessarily progressive, but definitely I believe it. And I think that um, a lot of these Movements are structured around the ideas like, oh, if we could just light the spark that gets the people into the streets, then we don't have to worry about exactly what happens next because the people responding to injustice leads to progress. And so in the case of the Brazilian um, organization, they had planned very carefully how to spark a popular uprising, but had no plans for what came afterwards because their idea was that they were going to step off of the stage of world history. They didn't need to lead what would come next. What came next would would take care of itself. Um, but what turns out to be true, unfortunately, is that the people is always a concrete configuration of human beings with different roles in society, different ideas of what progress means, different ideas of what progress means, different class positions. Uh, and so on. And in the case of the Brazilian uh, uprising, they turned out to have very, very different ideas about politics than the original organizers. Um, but I, I, at this moment, I, at the moment that, and I try to capture this in the book <clears throat> because so many people felt this way, at the moment that the people, quote unquote, took to the streets, like millions of people, or at first it was hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of thousands joined the uprising that was originally put together by leftists demanding cheaper public transportation for working class people. I saw it as this kind of almost mystical eschatological break. Like it's happening. Like this, this, this inevitably of course, well, it didn't at all led to the exact opposite. Um, and looking back on it, it's kind of like, you know, it's it's fitting that people wore these masks because it's like V for Vendetta politics, right? Like, have you, like I rewatched that movie uh, that, like, you may remember from the 2000s. But it, it's just like one guy who creates the conditions for revolt using, like, a viral viral clips, essentially. He, like, hacks the, the, the communications apparatus of some British dictatorship. And then, like, all of the people show up at the... The palace and all of the people are identical, right? Because they're wearing the exact same view for Vendetta mask. They're all the same height. Now, 
from the vantage point of 2024, I think we'd be quite scared if tens of thousands of young men stormed the capital of a country wearing a mask from the internet because of a viral clip that they saw, right? But at the time, back in the 2010s, we were like, yeah, the, the people. And Gian Tuyal, who's a Turkish sociologist at Berkeley, um, who's written really, really good stuff, not only about Gezi Park, but the so-called Arab Spring, and something that he calls 21st, 21st century Bolshevism, and an attempt to sort of incorporate the lessons of the 2010s into new renewed um, organizing practices. He really, he really hammers this home that, you know, as, uh, as you just said, uh, Sopo, these were middle class, these, a lot of these ended up being middle class um, movements. And there's a real elective affinity, there's a real overlap between the demography of the people that are in, the, in these movements and the form that they take. Because assemblyism, this kind of permanent, permanent talking shop, is kind of like a graduate seminar. And like a lot of these people like were grad students, right? Like, and a lot of the people that, you know, that's fine. Like part of, you know, any any revolutionary movement, any political, um, any political project is going to involve a lot of talking about what it's all about. But this this really became essential to um, the 2010s. And not everybody wants to be, you know, there are all different types of people that can't participate in endless meetings that are workers of a different type. They want to participate in different ways. And uh, it mattered in the ultimate, Gian Tuyal says this, that it matters quite a bit in the, in the final analysis that traditional working class organizations were often absent or if, or when there were working class people, and even if they were, you know, sometimes they're in the minority, but often they were not um, part of the, the, they were not acting collectively in the way that we would have remembered from the 20th century. So yeah, I mean, this, it, it ends up really mattering to the outcome in places like, you know, again, P Ukrainians know which type of people went to Euromaidan. Um, but in the West, we just got the idea that the Ukrainian people were there. Well, you know, people that voted for Yanukovych didn't go, right? Like, um, and, you know, it's very fair for people in Western Europe to think, well, I don't like Yanukovych. I would have never voted for him. He's not the people. But the like the fact that all those people exist also in Ukraine really matters to the outcome of the story. And so in Brazil, this is something that I watched like from up close. Like um the um demography changed minute by minute in front of uh um my eyes because it was it started with leftists and punks and anarchists and then it became more middle class people more right-leaning people etc and um yeah so this is i mean again this is a lesson i think a lot of people learned um uh is that it really matters which people show up quickly i think i just slightly i might have misspoken so i think i said that People that voted for Yanukovych didn't go. I think it's more accurate to say supporters of Yanukovych didn't go in Ukraine. Maybe you could just keep that, that I'm correcting that now. Or you can, uh, people who voted for Yanukovych. I'm sure you, because you, I'm sure someone could say, well, actually, I know, you know, my cousin voted for Yanukovych and then he went. Yeah. In Ukraine, supporters of Yanukovych didn't go. So, yeah. The Brazilian example is, is quite horrible. Like, I thought that was the, I mean, of course, every other example, I mean, the Egyptian one is, I think, the worst, probably. But um 
very, very interesting. Cause I think I knew about Brazil the least. So that was more interesting for me because I, I knew about a lot, the, a lot of the other facts a lot. I mean, a lot more. So maybe you can, because I don't think, you know, who are listening know exactly. Give us a little bit of um, a quick rundown of what happened because there is this interesting thing where you have uh, a leftist uh, in charge and then you have a, a different group trying to organize for free fairs and then you actually have the country like you said first time i'm seeing people like better off like there's there's just great changes from Ula to delma like there's like these huge movements going on that's just clearly benefiting a lot of people much more than even bus fares or whatever like that that is like so to me like looking at it from a bird's view right is like and of course and past the event is like come on like the you can like the fares are not the biggest problem right now you know and so and then you see this um you know well-meaning you know protesters just completely unleash something that the right wing immediately takes over and they're just like clueless you know it was it was really like just horrible reading it i was just like oh my god how are they this naive you know um so maybe you can give us a little bit of like explaining that um, for our our listeners who may not know the details like I didn't. Yeah, absolutely. And so this story of how the MPL gives rise to the MBL and then ends up being sort of cast off of the 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 cast off of the out of history by the MBL is really fascinating. One, I'll try to do it as quickly as I can. Quickly, I think I just slightly I might have been really crazy and people still fight over what really happened, how it was that the MPL gave rise to the MPL. And the MPL is, no one even knows what it is anymore. And the MPL are, are real players in Brazilian politics. So I'll try to do this as quick as I can. Um, in 2013, in Sao Paulo, um, in June, um, the national and city government were led by the Workers' Party. That's Lula's party. It's a so, uh, you know, a, a, a party that comes from the left that, that governs as a center left uh, social democratic government, uh, social democratic party in the global south. The and the mayor of Sao Paulo, Fernando Haddad, announces that he's going to uh, increase the price of a bus fare. Now, this has already been announced, promised in the campaign. He said he was going to do this before he was elected. So he's not like, you know pulling a fast one on the Brazilian people. Um, I agree with the, the free fair movement, this, um, or the MPL, this small group of leftists and anarchists that Brazilian workers pay too much to get to work. Uh, this takes a huge chunk out of the monthly income of the average Brazilian. But Haddad, the mayor, he's not like cheating. You know, this is, he, he thinks he needs the money. He believes that the best way to raise it is to raise the bus fare. Um, and so this is going to go into effect in June. Now, the MPL, the Movement, the MPL, the Movement Passi Livre, this free fair movement, which is, as I said earlier, explicitly horizontalist, has six months to carefully plan a set of raucous street demonstrations um, consisting of prefigurative direct action that are really going to 
make problems for the government. So they block turnstiles, right? Because they don't believe in paying fares anyways. They make it impossible for people to pay. To, they make it impossible for people to pay for public transportation. Uh, you know, they're the free fare movement. They and then they shut down ma major arteries and they like stage protests in the middle of really big streets. Now, this gets media attention. This causes problems for the government, but it doesn't really get like the country on their side, right? So by June 13th, Brazil's mainstream media, which is owned by Brazilian oligarchs, often with links to the feudal landed aristocracy rather than the kind of oligarch that took over in the 90s, um, they call for a police crackdown. Now, if this group of journalists came from the demography, came from the part of Brazilian society that usually experienced repression at the hands of the military police, they would have known what was this, this was going to look like. They should have seen coming uh, what an actual crackdown carried out by the military police actually is. But when it comes, the crackdown that they asked for, it shocks them. You know, scenes of horrifying violence are immediately going viral, not only nationally, but globally. Uh, the police crack down not only on the punks and the anarchists that they want to get beat up, but on people like me and the journalists that work for their outlets. I mean, I get teary. I'm fine. I don't get like beat up. But very famously, some members of Brazil's like mainstream media um, get really hurt or arrested. So like imagine if, you know, like whatever. Uh, 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 New York Times columnists end up, you know, severely injured as a result of a, a crackdown that the New York Times asked for. Um, and so from morning to night, the mainstream media flips its narrative from saying we need to clear these punks and anarchists off the streets to this is a patriotic uprising in defense of the rights to rise up in defense of things. Like it, it really... They transform a concretely horizontalist and very well-structured movement about public transportation into the kind of post-ideological thing that media has loved so much since um, Egypt and Tunisia. Because they say that it is about everything and nothing, hundreds of thousands of people show up believing that it is about whatever it is they want it to be about. And so they bring their own narratives. And because Brazilian, Brazil's oligarchic right-leaning media just is kind of liberal and right like liberal on social issues, right-leaning on economic issues, they, when they're trying to explain why this thing is a good thing, because they can't say it's bad anymore, but they're also not going to say that we need to de decommodify public transportation the way that these anarchists want. So they supply their own narratives as to what it's about. So anti-corruption is one narrative. Um, opposition to the Workers' Party is one narrative. Just like public services in general is one narrative. That's one that I tend to think personally is more coherent uh, um, in capturing what the people are asking for, some relationship to the original demands. But there's this like fight over what it really means. And as I discussed earlier, the MPL is against hierarchy. So they can't set up a like a, a, a cadre formation program where they invite all these people in to learn, you know, the ideology and tactics of the free fire movement. They just don't know how to do that. They also can't just let thousands of people join their movement because if it's truly horizontal, now 
the movement is just whatever these new thousands of people think it is, right? And these thousands of people have shown up believing that the movement is something from the media rather than actually knowing what it is. So this other group of kids who have been either funded or trained by right-leaning libertarian or neoliberal um, think tanks or organizations in the United States recognize, I think correctly, recognize correctly, sorry, recognize, I think correctly, that the representation of the streets is up for grabs. You know, going back to that quote, like this movement's not representing itself. Someone can represent it. There's a fight over who's going to represent it. And so this group, understanding how popular in the, you know, the, the MPL has become in the last few weeks, they form something called the MBL, which is the Movimento Brasil Livre. And so free means something very different in their understanding. Whereas the MPL, free meant you don't have to pay for stuff. The state, you know, there is full decommodification of public services, especially transportation. What they mean is free markets. And these kids, I think, ultimately win the battle over the meaning of the streets. At the very least, they end up learning from what is possible in June 2013, how to put together or at least claim to be leaders of a new protest movement in 2015 and 2016 that ultimately calls for the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff. The MBL pushes for the election of extreme right president Jair Bolsonaro in 2018 and then run for office themselves, even though from the beginning they were pretending to be the kind of leaderless, apolitical, no party structure type of movement that the MPL really were. By 2018, they stand for election. By 2019, they've helped Bolsonaro get elected, and now they're in Congress. To the point where when I went back to Brazil in 2021, uh, back to Sao Paulo, met up with a lot of my old friends, said, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm writing a book. I'm interviewing a lot of the members of the MPL. They all thought that I said MBL because the MPL had disappeared from public consciousness, you know, a decade ago. Whereas the MBL are making news every day because they're they're like the young vanguard of the free market right in the Brazilian political system. Um, and so this is something that was really like really fucked up. This was something that really got like this is something that really like, the original MPL uh, members already went through intense periods of depression or difficulty dealing with, you know, how their movement fell apart internally. There were a lot, there was a lot of fighting. And then they had to put up with the rest of the country saying that somehow they were right wing or that some, somehow they were responsible for making making the, the, the coup happen in 2016. And then now they see people that they know thinking that they are leading this new movement. So like one of the main characters, her aunt goes to a protest thinking it's one of hers. But it's actually this right-wing group that is like intentionally stolen their thunder um, in a way which is very cynical, but ultimately tragically effective. What I did actually really like, and I want to put this out there, um, I really actually thought Dilma's and Lula's um, reaction was like, hey, this is what happens, you know, when you actually have a, uh, a government for the people, people's sort of appetites, you know, they get wet and they want more and more and they're going to make more demands. So that is actually also my, it's a really interesting kind of look because it's sort of like, um, it's, it's my own, um, my own development because I was also kind of more naive like Lula and Dilma in that situation. When I first came to Georgia, like I couldn't understand to have good intentions, protest, good people, 
And I just didn't understand why that would be looked upon as something dangerous by, you know, um, by people who shouldn't feel like that was dangerous. But then seeing how almost everything gets co-opted in larger geopolitical sort of, um, or like big interests uh, in Georgia now, I do, I, I do see it that way now. You know, like, it's like you see how dangerous anything gets in Georgia. Any kind of protest can be misused, judged, you know, like taken over. So, like, you know, I'm also head of a union. So, like, everything we do is, like, very, try from the beginning very much to make it just um, us and um, not let in all these different groups that could co-opt it. And it's, it's, it's a real challenge because we don't want to be taken over just like they did because we're not strong enough to withstand that kind of level of organization and media that they have. Well, it's, it's actually really interesting because the free fair movement in Brazil, even as much as they were explicitly horizontalist, they said that they were. It's something that always really kind of can't be sustained. Because if you look at the, th the, 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 the moments in which they were most effective, and I'm stealing this now from Rodrigo Nunes, who's a Brazilian philosopher who's looked at like the same things from a different perspective, is that they did all of their planning, like all of the really effective planning of the protest movements that would spark a popular uprising without letting anybody, anybody else in the room. They like, they went off, like they acted kind of in a very sort of, uh, 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 they acted in a very tightly structured way and said, no, 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 no. We need to like plan this on our own. They didn't invite every other social movement in Brazil into the, into the room. They, they, they knew sort of implicitly somehow that they needed to, to put up at least some kind of walls, at least in that moment. But then when they pulled them down, it was like, ah, horizontalism is going to mean that we're totally over. Uh, we we are, in the words, I think Haddad put it to me like this, um, swallowed up by the wave that they unleash, right? And um, no, it's really fascinating, this response. And I think you're right. So again, go back to the sociological question. I think this is more or less, I'm oversimplifying here, but I think it is understood historically and sociologically that often popular uprisings or revolutionary moments don't happen in 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 popular uprisings or revolutionary episodes don't happen in moments of like absolute deprivation when people are like starving or trying to survive and they don't happen when people are living really 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 well it tends to be when there's a lot of improvements there's been recent improvements but there's been promises that have, that have been made that have not been delivered upon. So it was once, it was it was a, 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 a former revolutionary in Bahrain, well, he's still a revolutionary, but a revolutionary in Bahrain that told me this is like, when people are like starving, they're just trying to get food. But if you make them into like, like Saudi citizens with just everything taken care of, well, they're probably going to be fine. It's somewhere in this middle level where people are moving up, but they want to move up in a, in a more sustained and more pronounced way that you tend to see... Um, uprisings or revolutionary movements and it's often as i said when some kind of implicit or explicit promise is not realized and, and, and they're saying well hey what about this and in the case of brazil it's really fascinating because dilma rousseff who like was hung upside down and beaten and electrocuted by the by the military dictatorship she believes in struggle she's not like sort of like one of these late you know she's not like the kind of leftist that believes in structure so much that she always casts casts aside uh, uprisings from below. It was actually sort of like, you know, to get back into like 
Marxist debates in Latin America, sometimes the Soviet aligned communist parties were the ones that were saying like, no, 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 don't do hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, Dilma was a part of the, the, the student, the, the, the student generation that said, no, we're going to um, go outside of the, the strictures of the, the big Marxist Leninist parties and, and try to take action on our own. So she believes in power from below. She believes in, in, in struggle. She believes in protests. And there's this really amazing image that someone in her staff passed on to me that I put in the book really quickly, where she's like trying to understand what she can give to the streets. She's sitting in a room watching TV all day long, watching footage of the protests with the sound off because she doesn't want people like me. She doesn't want journalists to tell her what the people are asking for. She wants to look at the signs that they're holding. But yet, of course, she's still limited by the footage that is supplied to her by the Brazilian media. She's not out there. She can't be out there. Um, and she's she can't figure out what to give the people. Now, on the Brazilian left, there are endless fights to this day as to what, not only what the free fair movement could have done in that movement, but what the PT should have done. So this is a debate that I don't get into. It's like, there's a million different opinions. One opinion is that like, no, the, the the Brazilian government should have actually really radicalized and put forward sort of, you know, media reform, political reform, a new constitutional project, et cetera, really responded to the streets instead of trying to push them away. Another argument says like, no, 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 that there was nothing they could do. There was always going to be opposition. And anyways, this is endless. But there is this strange kind of short circuit, this kind of like weird moment where two different sides of this equation are not looking directly at each other. They they're They're like... Everything is mediated through this fight with the police or through or by the media itself. And a president that truly believes in giving the street move, like she absolutely believes in, you know, in 2013, believes in cheaper public transportation. Like, absolutely. She believes in an expanded welfare state. She's not like she doesn't have opposite goals to the original protesters, um, but they find themselves on, on opposite ends of this strange battle that no one knows how to and no one knows how to proceed. You know, of course, one of your main um, examples in the book is Ukraine. And I think for the purposes of this podcast, you know, we focus on the post-Soviet world um, and we like to examine how, uh, you know, a book or study like the one you have written can illuminate or, you know, give us some insight into dynamics that are going on in the post-Soviet world. And so, you know, there's recently been a protest movement in Georgia um, against evictions um, uh, uh, because of this growing housing crisis that's been caused by inflation, by sort of ne like longstanding neoliberal policies and a number of other bigger economic factors. But what was very interesting was that when there was one a very combative demonstration, um, some of the more ardently pro-West oppositional um, neoliberally oriented uh, pro-U.S. Uh, media outlets and figures in the country um, tried to, you know, mediate and represent the conflict by saying, you know, in Europe, they don't evict people in the wintertime. Or by saying that, you know, this social movement represents, you know, our path towards some form of, Euro of, of Europeanism, um, which, of course, was a complete um, mystification of the actual dynamics and demands that people were making in the streets. Um, and this kind of uh, lends me to talk about 
your part about Ukraine, which I thought was really interesting because in the Ukraine context, you know, it's actually um, this very layered um, problem where you have the dynamics on the streets, then you have this kind of geopoliticized media representation to orient the movement towards being something that's, you know, represented as being pro-West. And in that process, you actually don't have, you have this basically, um, you know, move towards obfuscating who has the real power on the streets. But then at the same time, the same, you know, there's other forces who are trying to obfuscate the dynamics on the streets in a different way. Um, so that to me is like a very interesting process where I think in the post-Soviet world, given this post-1989, to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, post-1989 teleology about the idea that these post-Soviet states are in an internal um, forward-moving movement towards westernization and democracy, that it's actually these kind of like oppositional protest movements can only I would say, be mediated, understood, and then fed back to like the population as being movements for democracy, regardless of what the on the ground economic and political tensions are. And we see this um, used in a, in a way that's both domestic, meaning they're domestic power, and you go into this in Ukraine, right? There are different oligarchs, there are different bases of power, right? That are jockeying for, for influence and control politically. Um, but then domestically but then there's also this other layer which is that the geopoliticization of the post-soviet space and so me that was a dynamic that was less prevalent in the brazil example for example right you you definitely have some of that you go into these you know how this these uh, libertarians for example were uh, as you just talked about were trained um by uh, you know groups affiliated with the united states but i think that this i guess what i'm trying to get to is you know how do you see, especially in the Ukraine context, this tension between the local on the ground tensions and different factions that are kind of playing into and fighting over and feeding into this crisis versus this layered like geopolitical uh, pro-democracy um, idea that feeds into like Western geopolitical interests. Because to me, that's like a, the tension that we're always trying to navigate um, in terms of articulating what's happening in Georgia and elsewhere in the post-Soviet world. Yeah, so the I find that the usefulness of my approach, if there is any, is putting all of the different episodes next to each other and seeing what's similar and seeing what's different and seeing what happens across different territories and how things are, you know, certain tropes are reproduced even when circumstances are very different or... Um, certain tactics might even be reproduced when, when things are very different. So in 2013, you get three movements. You know, the, the, there, there are three sort of explosions in 2013, Turkey, Brazil, and Ukraine. And in all three, you get a couple of overlapping, um, you get, in, in all three, you get similar elements emerging. And all, all three of these are imperfect democracies. So like, Unlike Egypt, where it's like it's a dictatorship and it makes quite a lot of sense to just demand the overthrow of the, the leader. In all three of these cases, like, you know, better for better or worse, like the guy or woman in the case of Brazil won the election. 
Um, in all three cases, football ultras end up mattering quite a bit. Um, you know, and this makes sense if you look, you know, if you think about it for a while, like who's going to do well in an extended street occupation while well, football ultras are going to do well. But the dynamic that you're talking about um, that is common to all three is the the real flattening of a multi-layered and, multi, you know, episodic uprising as a single thing, right? And like Western, consumers of Western media will probably know like what that single story is, is the people of Ukraine rose up against a Russian-backed, a corrupt Russian-backed um, leader because they wanted to join Europe. Now, that's those elements are all there, sort of, but like that's a real flattening of something that has that starts in one way. And again, like at the beginning, polling before the police crackdown, polling before the crackdown indicates that only 40% or, or so of Ukrainians actually want Yanukovych to sign this association agreement anyway. So it's, it's, at the very beginning, it makes it doesn't you know the the very first people in the square really want that association agreement to be signed, but then after the crackdown, and again this is something that is reproduced throughout the decade, the crackdown appears to be especially shocking because it's a young against young people, it's against students. You have a majority of Ukrainians, even if they may still actually want Yanukovych to be in power, that think that the crackdown was bad, that they oppose police brutality, they see a reaction against police brutality as a legitimate way to proceed with the um as 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 a way to proceed in, in, in uh based on what's happened uh in the square and then you have third movement where a lot of the like in the final moments you know shots fired people dying a lot of the original like you have a different set of people like you there's like uh, demographically you have a different set of people that tends to dominate the square by february than you had in november and december uh, and of course, the final outcome is something that is very different than than that that moment when everybody was thought that Europe could mean whatever they wanted it to be. Europe could mean social democracy. That Europe could mean feminism. It's a very specific set of people that actually take power. And often in the West, we got a flattening of that. Those three episodes, those three moments, the original sort of pro, like legitimately pro Western and liberal moment, the larger explosion, the larger uh, uprising in, in, in response to police brutality, and then the final imposition of meaning on the fundamentally chaotic and um difficult to represent the, the you know the representation that is imposed right and so all of that gets flattened into one thing in the west and i'm just like oh yeah uh people rise up you know uh pro-western movement russian backslayer the people the people and again this narrative leaves out all of the people that indicated in polling in the beginning of 2014 that they would have they 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 still wanted Yanukovych to be the president and would have voted for him again in upcoming elections and all of those people are, are disappear from that very very simplified narrative now if you're watching russian media you may you may have an entirely different and basically inverse understanding of what's happening in the square where there's another type of flattening that happens and i met people in like i met people in odessa there was like a couple where the boyfriend and the girlfriend had like the exact opposite interpretation of what your Maidan actually was because he watches Ukrainian language, liberal media, and she watches Russian media. Um, and then they, you, you get, then you can, you can perform if you like the flattening where the only people 
you can you can perform the flattening where there's no one on the far right in the square, or you can perform the flattening where the whole thing is just the far right, right? Whereas in my analysis, I you know what I try to say is that the far right ends up punching like it's a very small group of people that ends up uh, 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 punching far above their weight and putting undue and extraordinary you know given how little few people there are they um put quite a lot of uh they 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 exert undue influence on the on the final outcome and so this flattening is something that it, it happens everywhere and again like the fact that certain people in the the fact that people certain people in the east really believed a different thing about what was happening in the square than people in the west or the western ukraine or in the West, like Western Europe and and the United States, ends up being fundamental to the conflict that starts. This is a this is a major driver of what actually happens and the tragedy that's been unfolding um, ever since. Yeah, I like your formulas for specific, inclusive, specific, and the two specifics have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the beginning, it's a a very very specific demand with very specific people. And again, there was only like a couple hundred people at the very beginning of your mind on. It was very clear to it's very easy to say who they are and what they want. Then you have this moment where kind of everyone's invited to the square and everyone can bring their own idea of what Europe means or what Euromaidan means or what and again if you just like support Yanukovych that you're not you know odds are you're not going to be one of those people. But it can kind of mean everything. But then at the very end there's like a real outcome imposed. Like the 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 this this cloud of desires becomes a very, very real outcome, which a lot of people find unsatisfactory. Um, and yeah, this this is something that we do see again across across the book. Yeah, it's kind of routine in Georgia. They'll get people out for something totally different. And then the opposition, which is better organized than anyone else, will then come up with a set of demands of nothing to do with a protest and use that leverage to get what they want. It's it's incredible to see it. And then I'm just like, the protesters don't even seem to be aware of this. I'm like, you didn't have any of those demands. That was literally last minute. Nothing to do with you. It's about them getting into parliament. You know, like we've talked about this already. Um, but it's also why our podcast exists, you know, reimagining Soviet Georgia is like in my own time, just personal experience of seeing the event take place and then the memory of the event is so radically different than the event like you said about may 8, like you talked about many other things right the the rhetoric of the spring when it was winter and so on and so on um and so it's like not it's amazing because you really can do all this work put your entire heart so sacrifice people you know people literally will die for some of these things and then just you know five Media outlets can completely change. It 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 blows my mind how vulnerable we are. Um, and then you know, so it's like the Soviet Union. You know, we're trying to guard, you know, guard, but like sort of be true to its memory, like what really happened, what really uh, thinking. Then what is the dominant, um, you know, anti-Soviet kind of history that exists? And this is one of our struggles. And we're, of course, incredibly outnumbered because everything is working towards making Soviet Union only some kind of horrific, you know, repressive uh, event. Um, and so I don't know, like, that seems to me what, you're not in charge of like everything, you know, it's like, 
it gets a little bit sad almost like how much can you actually do when you even if you do it like you or you even have a revolution or you have a, a movement you achieve things how that could just be completely changed in front of your eyes you know and how a way that a lot of times these countries will have wildly different politics internally and the outside will have a wildly different understanding of what's happening inside yeah and actually this is something that i didn't yeah thank you that's um and this is something that I put in the book a little bit, but not that much. But the profound cognitive dissonance, the huge gap between what people remember their struggle being about and how it is remembered caused real psychological pain to a lot of the people that I interviewed in the book. So without wanting to be too specific, some people experienced years of real depression and like a, 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 a like a an extremely difficult period in which they cannot reconcile what they know that they lived through what they who know that they are who that they know that they are what they know that they were fighting for and what is being said about them or what is or how things turned out or what is being told as the story of the of the movements that they created um and relating it back to the you know this is in the Soviet Union but Yugoslavia like I'm sure you know that like I think it might have been on his blog a while ago but Bronko Milanovic like wrote a, a, a little essay about this once where he said look and I don't think anyone you know, you know the the economist Bronko Milanovic uh Serbian like he I don't think anyone be, like accuse, like accuse him of being like like a diehard defender of uh, Yugoslavian socialism, but he he has a blog once where he's just like, none of my memories from of the period match the dominant narrative. Like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, everything that I remember about my childhood in Yugoslavia just doesn't like. Am I wrong? Like, am I it, it, do, am I misremembering this? Because everything that I remember about my life in this in this period seems to be erased from. The, the story of my country. And again, you know, um, not that the very, very critical narratives don't also come from a place of real um, lived experience, I suppose. I mean, I imagine. Um, yeah, this it reminded me of that essay, if we're going to relate it to the to the, the the context of the the end of European 20th century communism. But this that that issue that is talked about, you know, with people that lived through May 68, I think it is inevitable in a world of representation, in a world of media, in a world where there is a battle over the construction of history. Now, there's always been a battle over the construction of history um, ever since writings has been um, utilized, ever since histories have been written. But you do see an acceleration, I think, in the 2010s of how quickly stories shift, how quickly one image can move from one part of the world to the other, and how how fast this battle can be played out over whose memories get to be incorporated into dominant narratives and whose are excluded. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's only a little bit in the book, but some people really, really struggled with a cognitive dissonance of what they know that they were fighting for and what is now said about what they were trying to do. Um, yeah, that's a really great way to put it because, you know, one of the driving impetuses 
of us doing this podcast is because uh, in the post-Soviet world, especially though not only, um, the memory politics um, have a particular resonance and are often a hugely um, tense plane of struggle uh, amongst the various uh, segments of the society. And one of the things that you mentioned with this uh, Bronco Milanovic article that I think is very true, I see in Georgia, and we've heard about this in Ukraine and other places, which is that, you know, memory regimes get established that are often at odds with huge segments of the population's uh, self-understanding and experiences. And then they use a particular memory regime in order to say that to be a good Ukrainian, to be a good Georgian, to be a good Russian, to be a good Tajik, you've got to actually line up behind this particular narrative. Um, and then people wade into this state of like dysmorphia. You know, I always think about it as this dysmorphia where on the one hand, the Soviet Union, for example, in Georgia was the best period you know, we had more, we had more stability. Um, and at the same time, the national memory regime is telling you that that is actually outside the bounds of what it means to be a citizen of this country, you know, at this point or this nation. And so um, that to me is like a very fundamental problem that reproduces uh, a longstanding uh, political crisis, or actually you referenced a friend of the podcast and your book of uh, Volodymyr Shenko's idea of these deficient revolutions, right? That these post-Soviet nationalism, nationalisms attempt to create a new representation of the nation, but by doing so actually are fundamentally exclusionary by, by virtue of the kind of anti-communism or sort of narrow nationalisms that they reproduce. Um, and so I think that's like a really important uh, thing to consider, um, especially when we're talking about the post-Soviet world. Yeah, the one thing that I found, this reminded me of something. In a lot of cases in, in the book, by the 2020s, people that were in social media during the actual thing all kind of came to the same conclusion as to what happened. So even cases where people like still kind of hate each other for positions that they took at the time, when I got them in separate rooms and asked what happened, like for example, in Hong Kong, people that were like really, really, really hate each other and still hate each other. When I talked to every single different type of participant in the, in Hong Kong, you know, people that really support, Beijing or that were really, really adamant about destroying the the, um, the Communist Party of China. At the end of the day, they had like a more or like if you got them in different rooms, their ultimate overall story was quite similar. The difference was whether or not they believe that the CPC is the future of humanity or must be destroyed. But like the like fundamental story that was told, and again, this happened in Brazil, um, Haddad and Mayara, who were in, again, really going against each other, they come to the exact same conclusion at the end of the book. In Ukraine, no. In Ukraine, you have like mutually exclusive stories. Um, and I was like looking into like, what, how is that possible? Why is that possible? And, you know, the more and more I read, the more and more I talked, it's like, oh, there's, there's mutual exclusive ideas of what Ukraine is. There's two, two, you know, and both of them are internally coherent. They both, they both are based on real things. 
stories that go back to the birth of the nation, what it is to be, what Ukraine is, what, 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 what the Soviet Union meant and so on. And there are two fully coherent but separate ideas of the history of, of the country. And this, and this, of course, you know, you know, would make sense logically. This would follow through to, to Euromaidan is that people still like disagree on fundamental aspects of uh, Maidan uprising in 2013 and 2014, where many, many other places like former enemies have the same basic conclusion. I found this was not the case um, in, in Ukraine. People did not end up agreeing on the basic chronology in the way that they might have been, you know, Brazil or Hong Kong or Chile or, and so on. I think it's also like the fundamental part of what, of Maidan is like very different than every other example. Like Maidan's about one of the things was like trying to forge a closer relationship with the West away from Russia. Right? So I mean, you, you don't have that in Brazil. You don't have that in Egypt. You don't have that in Tunisia. Like this is, It's not a geopolitical thing there. It is in some way. Not really, you know. Uh, Ukraine, it's like, in Georgia, it's like very direct, just like nothing about the content of the, you know, of everyday life or even internal politics, but like straight up geopolitical. Um, so that's why it becomes even harder to have even any opening for social movements, you know, sort of create so like uh, movements around social policies or so on, just straight up geopolitics all the time. Yeah, I mean, I would say two things quickly. One, Hong Kong is really about, I think, geopolitics. And again, this is something Brian spoke about, like, the easiest narrative is like democracy. And like, yeah, uh, Hong Kong grew out of the umbrella movement, which was about electoral processes. But I think really the issue is about autonomy from China, like how much how how much autonomy is the special administrative region going to have from Beijing? That's what it was really about more than um, electoral processes. Um, but then, yeah, in the case, you know, obviously a war that begins right away makes it very, very diff difficult, you know, a war that begins right away and then is still, you know, becomes, you know, goes on for a long time. And then ultimately you have the full Russian invasion. That makes it very, very difficult to come to shared understandings because you don't want to reproduce anything that the other side said. Like you don't want to seem to agree with anything that the other side said because that's being used to kill your side right now. So this, this of course, makes it much, much more difficult. But um, yeah, geopolitics, I mean, geopolitics, it's interesting because sometimes in some cases, geopolitics matters at the very beginning. But in some cases, geopolitics rears its ugly and horrifying head at the end. And this is often what happens in North Africa, is that the reality of an imperialist world system shows up as a horrifying surprise to people that were proceeding without really planning for it. You get like you get the imperial counterattack very quickly uh, in a place like Bahrain. In Libya, what you get the the representation that is imposed upon the people who have legitimate, um, who have, uh, sorry, the representation that is imposed uh, on the people that have legitimate complaints about the Gaddafi government is NATO bombing the country, right? And so I think geopolitics matters in different moments. And, you know, Ukraine is interesting where we're like at the very beginning, it was all about, you know, that first couple hundred of people were were there all about this, this association agreement. But, you know, in this in the in wave two, it's a lot of people that are not there for that reason. It's there people that are there for um, concerns about police brutality or or, or uh, oligarchization in the economy and so on. But in different ways, 
the world system ends up mattering. And that's why I try to, that's why I, I, I favored a chronological approach for this book is that I want to see where it comes rather than working backwards from the final outcome. To the end. Well, because it ended this way, that's what it was all about. Well, actually, it's important to see like when things appear in different moments. At least that was, again, that's the, that's the value of my approach. I think if there is any is to, is to see what happens in one order. Yeah.